Welcome back to The Francisca Show, where we encourage fellow artists and entrepreneurs to collaborate and support each other while sharing their stories. I'm Francisca, a singer, composer, music producer, and also your host. Today we have with us Dr. Leslie Gitzbark-Klein from Baltimore, a Jewish educator, speaker, author, singer, songwriter. Wow, what do you not have on your list? (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You are known for so many different things that you do, and it seems like whatever field you touch or come across or get yourself involved in, you make a splash and you do something impactful. So tell us how it all started, what your background is, and where did your passion ignite originally? So I'm originally from Chicago. And I would say that I was interested in Jewish women and Jewish women's history from as far back as I can remember. I think a lot of that is my mother's influence. My mother gave a lecture series when I was little called Jewish Women Hidden in History. And she researched all these important Jewish women from from history that people really didn't know about. And she would speak about them and share their stories. And so I grew up with these names around my house. And throughout school, whenever we were assigned a project, um, let's say in history class, to write about a woman, write about some the Crusades. So I found a woman to write about. I always focused, whatever assignment there was, I always focused on a woman and on women's experiences in that time period. I wrote about the suffrage movement when I'd write about American history. I always found something. I remember in um, social studies class in my sixth or seventh grade, we were given an assignment to write about a rabbi from the time of the Gemara. And as I was leaving the classroom, a couple of the boys in the class started teasing me well, what are you going to write about, Leslie? You can't write about a woman this time. And I kind of felt a little bit sad and dejected. And then my teacher, Mrs. Eichenstein, said to the boys, oh, yes, she can. Leslie, you can write about Bruria. And that moment meant so much to me because what it said to me as the kid is that you as a woman always have a place. And, and that women's experiences are so important and relevant in every time period. And that love for Jewish history and for kind of bringing women's voices and experiences to the forefront, that has carried with me throughout my life. And I ended up getting my PhD at NYU in in education and Jewish studies, and was focused. I focused on a Jewish history topic, specifically the history of Beis Yaakov and Orthodox women's education. So it seems like you were very, I don't know if I would say it, ahead of the game with the whole women's voices and women's impact. I mean, Torah was always into it because, I mean, we have Megillah Esther and Megillah Ruh and hundred percent. And Miriam and such influential women, and they weren't cut out of the Torah, and they weren't, uh, their names weren't taken out. I mean, they didn't really have photos at the time, but 
you seem a little bit ahead of your time. You did see some of it from your family, but it was a passion you had on your own, right? It wasn't coming from the outside. I guess so. I have a specific role model that I could look at and say, yes, this is what I want to be. No, I did not have that. I had a lot of very positive influences in my life. My mother, I mentioned, Miss Seichenstein was a very positive influence. I, I had a lot of excellent teachers who were positive influences in my life. Um, but no, I don't think there was that model out there of this is what a from woman can accomplish and this is what a from woman can be. And and I do think that's something that I have tried as an educator to give my students is just models of, of um, what you can accomplish as a from woman. Mm-hmm. Did you go to Hannah Sachs Basiakov? Yes, I, I went to Hannah Sachs Basiakov for high school. After high school, I, I went to Michlala for a year, and then I did my undergrad at Stern. And those were all really great experiences. Um, I really, I loved Michlala. I, I really loved Stern and there were a lot of things I loved about Stern and my classes were amazing, but I think the, the greatest thing that Stern gave me was the opportunity to be a leader. I was the editor in chief of the newspaper there. I held a different, a couple of different roles and in, in new student activities and it was such a valuable experience. And it's, um, one of the really important things and one of the reasons that I'm a very strong supporter of single sex education is that when women are in in all girls or all women's environment, it really gives them the opportunity to to um, hone leadership skills and take leadership roles that they might not have other places. And especially in Stern, not only was a, a women's environment, but it was a Jewish environment. So, you know, for example, had I been in another college, I never would have been the editor-in-chief of the newspaper because you couldn't do that and be Shomer Shabbos. So being in Stern really gave me the opportunity to have just the fullest college experience and have these incredible leadership opportunities. Right. It's nice to hear how, like, you have more opportunities and it's a fair playing field when you bring in Jewish and then you bring in all female you have just a lot more opportunity right yeah and there's so much research to support that girls thrive in single sex environments and um you know when you take away that pressure you take away that social pressure it also gives girls opportunities to um have self-expression that they might not otherwise have um, if you ever read Mystics, Mavericks, and Merrymakers or Mitzvah Girls, those are two academic anthropological studies of from communities where the researchers found that that the girls were just able to express themselves in these from in single sex environments better than than you'd see girls in um, other environments. Right. In code environments. Am I making sense? Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's obvious. (laughs) But I mean, thank God for research to back it up. Oftentimes, boys will dominate the leadership positions and that research is there as well. So it's just great to give girls just an opportunity to thrive. 
also in an environment in a community where tzniyas is the essence of women. I'm sorry to say that, but I think that's the major messaging that from girls are raised with today. If they were in an environment where they're with boys and they are naturally inhibited, right? then they won't volunteer for leadership positions. They won't volunteer to be creative, to initiate. Right, to do things that are so. a little bit crazy. I mean, you have these girls on stage doing physical comedy and they're hysterical. And you don't even, you know, that's something that they're struggling with in Hollywood. A hundred percent. So you go into a few different areas, and I, I've seen your name associated with a bunch of viral sensations in the Jewish community. So what would you say was the first thing that, that you played a major impact role in? So I guess that would probably be Girls' Night On, which was pretty early in the explosion of women's music opportunities um, in America. That's... Yeah, that's that started for me in um, 1999. I was in Israel and I attended an open mic night hosted by a woman named Alana Greenspan, who is living in New Jersey today. And it was so inspirational to me to see this stage where where women were getting up and performing. And I'd always been a performer. You know, I was in all the plays and elementary school and high school, but we all know what happens. You graduate high school and those performance opportunities dry up. So I saw these women on stage and, and I performed, I, I did comedy at one and I sang at another, but I, I, I looked at Alana who was a singer songwriter and she was writing these incredible songs and playing them. And I thought, Oh my goodness, that looks like so much fun. So I came home and I signed up for guitar lessons. I was 22 when I started playing guitar. And my goal ultimately was to be able to write. So a, I, was, um, I was back in New York in grad school. I walked into Carmine Street Guitars in Greenwich Village, which was right near NYU's campus, and asked if they could recommend a guitar teacher to me. And in an incredible streak of like Hashgacha Pratis, the the guitar owner recommends this woman named Eve who lived a couple blocks away. And I started taking lessons with her and I took lessons with her over the next seven years. And um, during that time, Eve, who was Jewish, you know, Eve became Chava and she became from, and she's now making incredible music in Borough Park. And it was just, that was just an incredible relationship for me and she's like the most talented guitarist you could imagine and she taught me how to play guitar and then she taught me how to write songs and I started writing songs so then I've now I have my guitar and I have my songs but I have nowhere to play them so you know I'm living in Washington Heights and every Shabbos we're all sitting around complaining how we have nowhere to perform you know a couple of us were artists and I had the feel a field of dreams moment. If they if I build it, they will come. And so I organized an open mic night in a shell basement in Washington Heights. And the first one, I was terrified, like we're not going to get anyone. And thirty women came, and it was great. And I did another one a couple of months later, and then forty women came. And then someone put me in touch with 
with um, Makor. Um, I was in grad school at that time. I was doing the Wexner Graduate Fellowship. And so there were many people who had connections in the art scene in New York. And someone put me in touch with Makor. And we moved to Makor and the shows just exploded. Within a few months, we're having 180 women, 200 women. I mean, we were selling out every show. I was struggling to get enough women on stage. And it was really, it was just really astounding. I mean, the energy was amazing at these open mics. You know, a lot of open mic nights in New York can be adversarial. You know, the audience isn't always so friendly or supportive. And this was the most supportive environment. And because of that, even though this was kind of started at, from a Coalition perspective, I would say that maybe maybe 60% of the performers were uh, observed Kalisha and, you know, at least 40% didn't. They just liked performing there. I mean, there were, there were women who weren't Jewish who contacted me. Hey, can I perform? I've heard such great things about this show. And there was something that was, again, like so powerful about this women's environment and women being supportive of women. And, and you know, there were the you had the entire breadth of the Jewish community there. And I said even some not even part of the Jewish community. There were caravans of women coming down from Muncie, Hasidish women in double head coverings. And they are singing and dancing and supporting the woman in jeans. It was just, it was such a just beautiful, beautiful event. And just, it was so, I think it's, in inspiring and, and empowering, just giving women this opportunity to get on stage and express their voices. And for you to find out that, um, that the woman who lives two doors down from you is an artist. You didn't even know. Right. I do the shows now in twice a year in Baltimore and literally the, the woman who has the carpool spot next to mine is a singer songwriter. Who knew? I wouldn't accept that, that she came to the show and she performed and she was great. And so many women are great. And it's just fantastic to have those opportunities. You know, at the time in New York, there, there was, there was really nothing like this was it. And, um, Baruch Hashem, that scene has just exploded and gotten so professional. And it's just really, it's really amazing to see. Wow. So you write your songs and, you do you record them and make them into albums? No, I, it's something. It's something that I would love to do theoretically. It's not really so realistic for me at at this stage of my life. I don't have the, I don't have that time to devote to it. Um, for my fortieth birthday, my husband did give me two hours in a recording studio, so I did record box tops, which is a song that I wrote about, um, gosh, well, how would you describe it? A, a, a woman's descent into madness over having to collect box tops for her kid's school. <laughs> Which is something if your school has the box top program, <laughs> most people can relate to it. I, I know about them. Yeah, just my daughter's too, so I haven't reached that yet. And I wasn't raised in the U.S., so... Oh, I know God, about yeah, it. You just, you just get initiated into the world of box tops <laughs> and the pressure to collect those box tops and, you know, get them back with your kids. So anyway, I wrote that. So I, I did, I did put that one down and I do record, do the live recordings. But the truth is, I mean, I, 
I'm not really a professional level singer or a guitar player. I, I really do more do this for fun. If I can classify you, if I may, you're, you're a comedian. And then one of the tools you use to express your comedy is music. Right. I guess so. A friend once said to me, I'm a poet with a guitar. Like, <laughs> that's right. also for Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, that's yeah. super unique as well. I just love doing it. Most songs that I write, I write in like an hour because it just, the idea comes to me and the rhymes just like fly out. Like I write the lyrics first and then the music. I think more, I think really probably more trained musicians probably do the opposite, but really I'm a lyricist more than anything else. And that is the one thing that I have done on a somewhat professional level is, you know, write lyrics. I've consulted on people's lyrics before. So I will write the lyrics and then I'll sit with my guitar and, and find a, a tune to go with them. Right. Now, plenty of artists write that way. And then you have the few who write the lyrics and the music at the same time, like a Navi, you know? And there's people who play guitar by ear. I hate them. <laughs> oh my God. Cheer song, be able to play it. Whereas I'm sitting, you know, memorizing chords. It, it's, it's a skill, but it's also some inner intuition, maybe. It's a talent, but it's also a skill that can be developed. <laughs> anyway, I'd love to talk about the song that went viral, especially with the From Women Have Faces campaign or From Women Have Voices. Mm -hmm. You wrote the song, you posted it on the Koalisha group, I'm assuming only there, or women-only groups. Right. And it exploded. Well, it that, there's actually two recordings of it. So I posted a recording on the Koalisha group the very first time I performed it. And then, um, and that one was actually, I mean, you're talking about out of the picture. So it's a, a rap that is set to music from Hamilton. So I, the first time, this is again, I guess, I guess I would call it Hashgaha. Um, the first time, so I posted a version that was half singing, half spoken word. And I posted it on the Kolisha and it got amazing feedback. And, and that was, that was really, really great. I performed it a different time uh, in Baltimore. Um, I performed it and I just decided I wanted to try it just straight spoken word. And so I performed it that way. And at the end of it, I was like, oh, I think it was really better half singing, half spoken word. And the audience just disagreed because they had heard it both ways. Many of the women in the audience had heard it both ways. And they said that when it was just straight spoken word, it was so much more powerful. And I'm thinking, okay, whatever, fine, wonderful. And um, didn't really think all that much about it. And then one random Sunday, a couple of months later, I start getting a mass of text messages at the same time. Um, somehow that video got uploaded, sent around WhatsApp. I have, I can't say how. Um, certainly wasn't, I was not the one who put it up there. I think within like five days, it had 60,000 views, which was really crazy. But I was very happy that the version that went viral was the version that was straight spoken word, not the version that was half sung and half spoken word. Mm -hmm. Because I, I, I think, I guess because of that, I really think that's probably why it got passed around as much as it was because it there there was no singing on it. And 
I mean, even though whether recorded music even counts as Kalisha is a question, um, but certainly that's the um, practice of much of the communities to consider recorded music Kalisha. So I was, again, happy that the version that went out was the straight spoken word version. Right. And for anyone listening who hasn't heard that song, can you tell us what the major message of it was and what sparked the whole thing? Sure. I've long been an advocate against the erasure of women in in um, our society. I've been interviewed about it on headlines. I have written about it in a number of places. I believe that it's damaging the health of our community. I believe that girls need SNES role models, women who women who model a healthy SNES. I believe that that is that we are having challenges in teaching SNES and having girls really understand what what modesty means from an empowerment perspective. And and a lot of that is because women are erased. There's no place to see a woman with a healthy perspective on SNES. There are no women don't see girls and women don't see role models. Instead, what they're seeing are the images of the secular media and the objectification of women. And those are the only images they're seeing. And they're not seeing positive images to counter that. And, you know, there's psychologists have done research about the impact that seeing images have. And if you don't have counter images, then it has a very negative impact on girls and and on their self-perception. And this gets in, I mean, there's, this gets into issues of modesty. It also gets into eating disorders and just general body image issues. Oh, yes. So I believe that, that, yeah, that it's, it's extremely problematic. It's also wrong. It doesn't have a basis in halacha. It doesn't have a basis in misora. And that's one of the things that, that aggravates me is when, when I'll, you'll see a magazine make a claim. Oh, this is the way it's always been. First of all, no, it's not. I'm in my 40s. I'm old enough to remember. Like, I don't tell me that's how it was 20 years ago. I remember it wasn't. This is new. This is this is something that's popped up in the past 15 years. And um, and as a historian, I have literal physical evidence to the contrary because I have, you know, I have the binders of my dissertation research, which are all you know, photocopies taken from yeshivish publications throughout the 20th century. And there are pictures of women. There are pictures of women on the cover of the Jewish Observer, which is a good as magazine. You know, it's just, it's it's a crazy claim. Um, and, and I also believe in this, you know, it's this practice is kind of advanced in the name of SNES, but it's really detrimental to SNES, both on girls' perspectives and on boys, because what it is effectively doing is hypersexualizing women and saying that there is something inherently inappropriate about a woman's face. And it's just so wrong. And, you know, it's ironic because I've actually seen my, uh, there was a billboard in Israel where, where um, someone came and vandalized the billboard and spray painted the woman's face. Forget that she has a low-cut neckline and sleeveless shirt. That's okay. That was left untouched, but we have to cover her face. 
And so olam hafuch. I mean, that that's that's upside down. Yeah, that's very disturbing. When you go for your speaking engagements, is this the primary topic that people hire you for? No. When I speak, I speak about Jewish history or I give shirim. And those can be, a lot of times I speak about the history of Beis Yaakov and I speak about women in Tanakh, but not exclusively. I speak a lot about leadership also and about um, looking about how we can learn, what we can learn about being leaders today. And I don't just mean that to being a professional leader. I mean that in the sense that every single one of us needs to be exercising leadership, being leaders, and what we can learn from Jewish history and from Tanakh. And if I'm speaking to a women's audience, I might tailor that a little bit from the women of Tanakh and what we can learn as women. If I'm speaking to a mixed audience, then I'm speaking more broadly on leadership. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm happy to hear that I mean, we've discussed this before in the podcast, but some women have issues getting speaking engagements for mixed audiences because uh, communities prefer to have a man to make everyone more comfortable. Do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, you are correct. It's a big, it is a big challenge. Um, it's extremely frustrating to me when I'll see a poster for a big event and this is a topic that women can and should be speaking on and yet all the speakers are male. Um, Avital Shiza Goldschmidt and Shoshana Keats Jaskal kind of pointed that out recently when there was a an event on Jewish femininity and both speakers are male. And so they created a mock poster of an event on Jewish masculinity. And it has them as speakers. I'm sure you saw I it. think they're, they're actually planning to make it happen. I think Shoshana's coming know, to the States. Which would be great. Um, but yeah, you, you point out, you look at that and you're like, oh, well, that's absurd. Well, why, why isn't the first one absurd? It's also absurd to, to not have women speaking on these topics. Um, and, you know, Pesach programs or maybe, maybe if there's a token woman speaker. Most of the time there just isn't. Um, so that is certainly frustrating. There are less opportunities. Obviously there's only a certain category of show that's going to ever bring in a woman. That said, in the past two years, I have seen a shift and I think that more show, I I've gotten calls from a number of shows who have said, you're our first woman. Like we have decided we're bringing in a woman this year. And I think that is, that, that is shifting. Wow. And please God will continue to shift. And that was something that the OU stressed in their um, statement on women's leadership. They stressed women expanding women's roles as educators and scholars and residents. Right. Part of the problem is that our community is not doing enough to create leadership opportunities for women where there is no halachic consideration. It's not a halachic issue. There's no halachic problem. But yet the opportunity doesn't exist there. And I think, the, you know, and then there's agitation for changes in women's roles that that is questionable halachically. And I think that the mainstream community is starting to realize that the reason those movements are gaining traction is because the mainstream community has not done enough to create women's roles and expand women's roles where there isn't a halakhic issue. Right. Now, women having board seats in organizations 
and speaking at events the, and, and having their pictures on dinner invitations, you know, like, I, I don't usually do this, but I'll bring this out here. I was recently listening to headlines where Miriam Cosman was talking, who is also a big, a big representative in Judaism and women. And she, she was talking about how the messaging is off and girls don't have proper role models to feel empowered. But then she said that it's not connected, the pictures, women names and invitations that that's not that's not part of the issue she sort of disregarded that as that being a side point most of the work you're doing and a lot of women with you is that the pictures is one of the primary sources or the symptoms of the issues and that's one of the first things that should be changed because first of all there's halakhically nothing wrong with it and it it, it has direct implications right. on the next generation. No, I agree 100%. I do think there's connection. Women feel disenfranchised and they're going into the professional world and they're respected and their names are mentioned and their pictures are put places. And, and then they go back to their community and they're not respected. They don't have a voice. No one cares about their opinion. And it's, it's jarring. I mean, even existing in this world, you can't exist in this world today and not and not see the difference. And um, I don't think I know there there some say, oh well, what do you need? What do you need your name? Listen, like, what do you, that's your name? Like what do you like? You know, I, I would. It it just seems so absurd. Like you that you want your name list. I think that girls feel disenfranchised and you know going back to the Hamilton rap the the first line of that song that I wrote was how do we tell our daughters they have a true place in a world around them that blurs out their face you know and this was something that had bothered me for a long for I mean a long time I'd already written about it but that day the day I wrote that I saw some it was some ad it was some ad and they had blurred out a child's face and then you hear the stories where you hear a seven-year-old girl saying to another one, oh, oh, we can't be in pictures. Girls' faces aren't sneas. We're, we're not sneas. And it's like, oh, oh, my goodness. If you think about before the Holocaust and uh, in Germany and other countries, they started putting ads in and they were mocking or they were joking or whatever it was, but Jews weren't allowed to sit in certain places or be in certain places and if it was Jews against non-Jews, today we call it anti-Semitism. And if it's men versus women, it's it's sneeze or that's Judaism. And and how is that okay? How is this different? It's just, it's it's not Judaism. This is a, a like a, re, a recent construction. Um, you know, it's interesting. There's a book that came out recently called Women of Valor. It's about women's representation in, in um, the media and in, Art and literature. It's written by Karen Skenazi. She's an academic in England, and she cites a newspaper article. There was, you, do you remember? There was this whole controversy in Stamford Hill in London about women driving. That the that members of the community said women can't drive, um, and then the government was starting to get involved. Yeah. Okay. So 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 this um, man was interviewed for the article. And he said, oh, my mother drives, my mother-in-law drives. 
does your wife drive? No, my wife doesn't drive. Why doesn't your wife drive? Well, that's our tradition. Made up tradition. (laughs) It's your tradition, but your mother drives and your mother-in-law drives. So it's not really tradition. It's innovation. Let's call it what it is. This is being presented as a return to tradition. It's not. This is a change. This is an innovation. This is this response to modernity, and in, in my opinion, it is a misguided response to modernity that will backfire. I mean, look at us where we are today and where we were 20 years ago before this policy. Are we in a better place with regards to modesty? I don't think so. I think we're in a way worse place. Are we in a better place with regards to girls feeling inspired? Again, I think we're in a worse place. So, I mean, I I don't think it's only the pictures. I don't think it's only the, the lack of names. But do I think that's part of it? Yeah, I think that's part of it. And that really is the main gist of of that rap is that we're failing okay we're failing the girls we're trying to protect and we're failing the boys we don't teach them to respect right a lot of powerful thoughts i'm thinking with all these changes or the pushback that the women are pushing toward for more women leadership positions and pictures back in the media names on invitations just to name a few examples, do you think this will create more of a divide within the community or will this sort of become the mainstream in the future? Like, where is this going? Is there going to be more division? For example, you'll just have more ultra, ultra, ultra orthodox who will never accept that and they'll just keep going more to the right and everyone else will have to consider themselves more modern. So I don't, I don't know because I'm a historian. So I try not to pass judgment for about 20 years. <laughs> I, don't, I don't predict the future. I'm not in that business. I can tell you that I've seen a marked change. I, I've seen a change in, in the past, I'd say two years of women, of the silent majority, what I believe is the silent majority, that the people advocating for these changes are really the minority, but no one was saying anything. And that's an endemic problem. Um, um, Rabbi Motzen in Baltimore just wrote a great piece on this for Cross Currents recently about this idea of a silent majority that in politics today, you know, everything's become so polarized. No one, I mean, I, I, I'm kind of a centrist. I consider myself a political centrist. I won't open my mouth on poli- about politics on social media. I don't feel like drawing a target on my back, you know? So the, so the only people who are kind of speaking up are the people on extremes and like the middle is just keeps their mouth shut. And I feel like it's the same here that, that most people, they, that I talk to, you know, I I can't say most, it's not fair. Let's say a significant number of people out there, they think this is crazy. They just don't necessarily say anything about it. You know, it's like, oh, whatever, it's crazy, but who cares? You know, they don't necessarily, they don't think it's right, but they don't necessarily see how wrong it is or why the need to speak up against it. And I've actually seen that change in the past two years of more and more people are saying, this is wrong. This is crazy. We need to, we need to push back. And, you know, I, I cannot tell you how many people reached out to me from my life after that rap went viral 
I mean, people I haven't spoken to for 20 years messaging me. Thank you so much. This is exactly what I'm thinking. Um, this is what my daughter, you know, this is such an important message for my daughters. And these are women in, in the right wing community. So just a thought, and I think we'll close off with this, but isn't the fact that the women feel like it's safer to just stay quiet, even though now in the last two years, more and more women are speaking up is the effect and the result of all the, I don't know if it's the inhibition or all the pressures, the social pressures that changed where women feel powerless to stand up for themselves and they just accept it. I think that is a big concern. I think that's a big concern. People think, well, your children should do him over your head, you know, or your your own shidduch. They, they dangle your own shidduch until the day you get married and they dangle your, your children's shidduchim. Um, so, yeah, I do think there is that social pressure, but that's, but nothing is going to change until a critical mass speaks up. And that's the only way things will change. But I do believe that change happens on the ground and change happens bottom up. So when I said before, the community needs to create more opportunities, I'm not talking about an abstract body, the community, and I'm not talking about the leadership. I'm talking about me and I'm talking about you and I'm talking about every single person listening to this podcast. We each have to do what we can to create more leadership opportunities for women. <coughs> we need to do what we can to make sure that our children, boys and girls, are being brought up in a healthy community, that they can open a magazine and see a picture of a family. With a mother and a father. See and what sisters I, and brothers. A mother and a father. Okay, think um, after Rav Moshe passed away, there was a photo spread in, in um, Jewish Observer of Rav Moshe and his Rebetzin and these beautiful pictures. And him, there was a picture of him like, with a granddaughter and I look at that and I think how sad that this generation's not growing up with that. They're not seeing what a normal family looks like. And, and you know what? The leaders of this generation, they did grow up with it. But I'm scared for the next generation where, where the, the leaders who are kids now, the future leaders, they're, they're growing up in a reality that, that they're not seeing representations of what healthy Jewish life looks like. And they're seeing plenty of negative imagery. You know what? And there's so much positive. And I, and I want to focus on that. There is so much positive. There are so many opportunities for women. And there are so many, there are so many things that women can accomplish. And we just have to do them. Had I just stayed and complained about I had no place to play my songs, so none of these open mics yeah. would exist. Wow, this was such a empowering conversation. I think everyone we've had on the show and many of our listeners are fighting the fight on a personal level, especially as artists, you have to fight so much harder. Right. So I think we're definitely speaking to the right crowd here. And it's so nice when I meet men who are fighting this fight as well. A hundred percent. Because that's true validation. It's not just affecting the women, it's affecting the men as well. And if 
they notice that and if they're fighting for it, then there's a real chance at something changing. I agree with you 100%. And you say you're an historian, but you do live in the present and you do use the present to impact the future. So Right. And I and I use the past to impact the future. Exactly. Of let's look at let's learn from the past. Um some other podcast, I'll talk about all the things that we can learn from the history of Base Yaakov and from Sarshmir's leadership about being successful leaders today. Because there's so much there. Oh yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Leslie, for coming on the show, sharing your wisdom with us. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. And as always, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to the show. And if you aren't on iTunes, go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. This helps us tremendously. It helps new people find the show thanks to your reviews. So thank you so much for being such an integral part of growing this show. See you next time. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.